0: This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bauerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. The following episode was recorded in mid April 2020, just four weeks after the World Health Organization declared the spread of SARS CoV 2, the virus that causes the disease known as COVID 19, as a global pandemic. At that time, schools and all non-essential businesses had been closed and people around the world were being asked to stay home. Scientists were learning a lot at this point, but it was unclear how many people would become ill and what the excess mortality would be. Although there has been some understanding of post-viral syndromes Prior to the COVID pandemic, like dysautonomia following influenza, we would quickly learn that there would be serious long term effects of COVID 19 that had never before been witnessed with any other virus. Welcome to Bendy Bodies. This is your host, Dr. Linda Bluestein, here with Dr. Dwight McKee, MD, PhD, board certified in medical oncology, hematology, nutrition, and integrative and holistic medicine. Dr. McKee has completed research in both pharmacology and immunology. He has practiced complementary medicine with an emphasis in nutritional and body-mind medicine. In 2008, he co-authored a textbook on herb, nutrient, and drug interactions, which is now widely used in medical schools and naturopathic colleges. He also works as the scientific director of Life Plus International, developing advanced nutraceutical formulations with an emphasis on support of the immune system, regulation of the cell cycle, and DNA protection. Dr. McKee spent two years doing immunology research at the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California, and recently co authored a peer reviewed article with colleagues in Germany titled Candidate Drugs Against SARS CoV 2 and COVID 19. I hope you will enjoy this scientific and sometimes geeky conversation filled with practical information for boosting immunity. As always, consult with your own healthcare team prior to making any changes to your treatment protocol. Dr. McGee, hello, and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Hi, Linda. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. So great to chat with you today. Um, So we're going to talk mostly about COVID-19 and, in particular, how it affects the uh, Bendy population that you and I know quite a bit about, and uh, definitely that's how you and I met. So I know you have uh, quite a bit of expertise in immunology and hematology and I'm just super eager to get uh, your thoughts on this. Um, yes, can you, and yeah, nutrition. Can you, and That's nutrition, right. yes. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, absolutely, and nutrition. So, so you have a perspective that is really quite unique and um, so valuable. So, so can you start out by telling us um, why COVID-19 is such a big deal and you know, how this is different from other viruses?
1: Well, you know, we're still learning new things about, about um, SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of the virus that causes the disease we call COVID-19. And what we do know is that it is, uh, you know, we had coronavirus, um, highly pathogenic human to human coronavirus epidemics with SARS, um, severe acute respiratory syndrome in the early 2000s and then MERS, in the Middle East, and SARS was originated in China. Was believed to be from a bat, as is SARS-CoV two. Uh, MERS um, had its reservoir in a camel, and because these are closely related uh, viruses, a lot of people have been going back and looking at the research that was done with the original coronaviruses. This one. Um, <clears throat> is more infectious, substantially more infectious. Mm. And not all the reasons for that are clear. There's no immunity in humans to this virus, but there was no immunity to the original SARS virus, it, it, except from, I mean, coronaviruses are part of the human virome that we are exposed to. All the time, and many people get coronaviruses um, that are passed off as the flu or uh, are very much like the common cold. Um, SARS was the first one that was deadly, Uh, and in fact, it was more deadly than this one, but much less infectious. So, the there was not as um, much global spread. Of the original SARS or merged uh, coronaviruses, one thing that was recently discovered, I heard on a uh, an interview that David Perlmutter was doing with a uh, uh, virologist in New York City, who discovered that there are prion-like sequences in the uh, what's called the spike protein. You know, it's called the coronavirus because when you look at it under an electron microscope you see all these little projections like a you know like a star or a, or a sun or like a crown around it that's where the name comes from and those are called ah. spike proteins oh ah, okay those spike proteins are what binds to receptors on human cells to gain entry to the cell and this and the receptor that SARS used is the same one that uh, SARS-CoV-2 uses, uh, which is the uh, ACE2 receptor, which stands for uh, angiotensin Converting Enzyme 2. This is an enzyme that's involved in blood pressure regulation and many other uh, aspects of physiology. And there are a lot of them on the lung cells called pneumocytes. They're also on macrophages. They're also on mast cells. They're also on um, endothelial cells. So the virus can gain entry into the lung cells. It can gain entry into the uh, intestinal tract cells. Those are also loaded with uh, ACE2 receptors. And it can gain entry into the, uh, the bloodstream. Most infection, the most prominent organ of infection is the lungs. That seems to be uh, the weakest link for people. And if they get this, uh, and this was the, the case of, of SARS where it got the name severe acute respiratory syndrome is because the, if the immune system overreacts in the lung, and you get too much inflammation, you get leaking of fluids from the vascular system into the alveoli, the air sacs in the lungs, and people essentially drown. Um, Mm. So the thing that's clearly different about uh, SARS-CoV-2 is that it is far more infectious than SARS-CoV-1, which caused the SARS uh, outbreak uh, in early 2000. And it appears not to be the the virus that is causes the morbidity and mortality, but a dysfunctional or exaggerated immune response to the virus. Uh, the so-called what many people refer to as cytokine storm. Interesting.
0: Okay. So, so are people who have more um, autoimmune conditions or? you know, that kind of thing, are they more susceptible to cytokine storm or, you know, complications? Um, Who, who is the most susceptible to getting these kind of complications from the virus?
1: Well, you know, we don't really know yet. It was assumed that immunosuppressed people would be more at risk. Um, But it's been, we, we have some experience with organ transplant recipients who are, you know, they have to take, immunosuppressive drugs, um, on a daily basis to prevent their immune system from rejecting the transplanted organ, um, because it's a a foreign tissue. So they are immunosuppressed by definition, but they've done fine with, um, Mm. COVID-19. And it may be that the immunosuppressed might be more, a little more vulnerable to getting it, but you know, everybody's pretty vulnerable to getting it. Um, And they actually may be somewhat protected because they don't get the exaggerated immune response. And people with autoimmune diseases are usually taking substances that suppress that autoimmune response, which may also suppress the cytokine storm response. So it, you know, we, we just don't really know we do know that people at risk are the elderly and there's a, a, a pretty big difference between over 70 and over 80. Um, the mortality risk with SARS over 80 goes up to about 10%. But I should say that mortality risk is also unknown and it's very inflated because our ability to test the general population has been quite limited. So we know all of the cases that die, we, they're all documented to be COVID-19 cases that died. So that's the numerator, but we have no idea of the denominator. And as countries have begun sure. to sc- screen for antibodies, they're finding out people have been exposed and are immune who never had any symptoms or very mild symptoms that they didn't they they would have never thought to go in and, and be tested because they didn't have fever fatigue you know headache dry cough uh, the typical symptoms associated with it so until we have population wide testing uh, the uh, <clears throat> the mortality rate is going to appear much higher than it actually is. And one is the, the many people are predicting that globally 60 to 70 of the, percent of the population of the seven and a half billion people on the planet are going to get infected with this over the next year or so. Um, but the one little experiment that we have that argues that it might be quite a bit lower was the uh Princess Cruise Ship in which there was an outbreak, and 20 percent. Of the people on board, including the crew and the passengers, 20% were infected, and there was a 1% mortality. And this was, you know, people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s primarily. It uh, tends to be an elderly population on cruise ships.
0: Sure, Th- that's that's really interesting. What do you have any um, theories as to the discrepancy there? Because you know, 20% uh, you know getting this versus 60 to 70, and I've seen those 60 to 70%, you know, figures also, um, is, you know, quite a quite a significant difference. And um, that that's pretty fascinating. And do you have any theories about that?
1: Well, I think historically with epidemics and pandemics, typically the predictions turn out to be worse than the reality. I think that's human nature to kind of be prepared for the worst and we also tend to kind of collectively panic. And, you know, my philosophy is prepare for the worst and hope for the best. So certainly, you know, a 20% infection would be uh, most preferable. My guess is that the, you know, the mortality rate in Korea, which were they, South Korea, where they did extensive testing of the population, but by no means the entire population, was 0.6%. And in Germany, where they're doing okay. a lot of testing, it's 0.4%. So I'm guessing that overall the mortality is gonna you know, come out somewhere in that 0.5% range, which is five times as bad as the flu. <clears throat> but if the if the media were covering the this year's influenza epidemic, the way they've covered COVID 19 everybody would be panicked because 45 million people in the US got the flu and 50,000 people died of it. You know,
0: which, wow. is, yeah. which
1: is a 0.1% mortality rate, but if sure. you know every case was news and everybody would everybody would be terrified about the flu. So I think a lot of the uh, you know the media response has really um, kind of fanned the flames of panic and The numbers that we're seeing in terms of mortality risk are vastly inflated because we have no clue at this point of the number of people who have already been infected, whether symptomatic or not, whether documented or not. And we won't until we are able to do widespread um, blood testing for specific antibodies to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is just, just coming out, just beginning to be available.
0: Sure, and I think that part of the uh, you know really scary thing for people is the uh, stories that we hear about you know these young healthy people who supposedly had no medical problems and and got this and then and then died. Um, exactly. Have, yeah, and and so that's I think you know obviously none of us want uh, you know elderly people to p- pass away either, but I think you know, given that that's, you know, much more, I think we can all wrap our brains around an elderly person getting influenza A or influenza B and, and getting complications and, you know, and not doing well with that. I think the scary thing for most of us is this idea of these young, reportedly healthy people? Um, I have I have some theories on that as an anesthesiologist and having you know cared for people for for many many years of, of my of my life, um, but I would love to hear your perspective because you and I have such different backgrounds. Do you have any sure. theories about that?
1: Well, you know, one of the theories is that the young people who who die from cytokine storm may be undiagnosed. Um, mast cell activation syndrome people who had mild symptoms. So they which they get tired of telling the doctors who just kind of dismiss them. Um, so they come up with a, a, a medical history uh, that's quote unquote unremarkable. You know, this is a, a theory that Dr. Afrin, who leads our mast cell activation syndrome group, has, has uh, put forward. Another, another theory that I have because of my focus on nutrition is that many young people today who are quote unquote healthy um, tend to you know consume the industrialized food that is available and they have many micronutrient deficiencies They're, they have an insufficient Level of zinc, they have insufficient levels of vitamin D. They may, uh, if, if they don't take multivitamins, they will have insufficient levels of vitamin A. And we know from the, the, the flu data that people who have uh, blood levels of 25-hydroxyvitamin D, the storage form of, of vitamin D, over 40 nanograms per mil, have a, a significantly lower incidence of influenza than do. People with levels below 30, 30 is considered normal, but it was determined on what's very likely a vitamin D deficient population. Uh, so, 30 is maybe average, but not normal. If you look at free living humans um, who are outside all day and not using sunscreen, typical 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels. Whether it's the lifeguards in San Diego that have been studied or Uh, People in sub-Saharan Africa, they tend to have 25 hydroxyvitamin D levels in the 50 to 80 nanogram per mil range. And that's probably, you know, the healthy normal range. Uh, And vitamin D is a very fundamental player in the immune response, as well as, you know, the, the traditional aspects that we were all taught about calcium metabolism and bone strength and so forth. It's been found that high dose zinc, given with a five-day a five course of high dose zinc, we're talking you know 200 milligrams a day, along with the uh, hydroxychloroquine, the uh, Plaquenil, which has been used for malaria prophylaxis and treatment, although most malaria is now resistant to it, and also is used for autoimmune diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. That a five-day course of Plaquinil has mild therapeutic effects by itself, but when given with high-dose zinc, uh, there have been this hasn't been studied yet in a in a randomized trial. But the clinical experience with it is that the hospitalizations are far below the twenty percent that are expected uh, when you combine high-dose zinc with chloroquine. IV vitamin C also, you know, oral vitamin C to bowel tolerance uh, seems to be uh, useful in quelling the hyperinflammatory response. Um, and intravenous ascorbate has been used quite a bit in China. I'm, I'm in touch with the uh, head of the ICU at the university hospital in Wuhan, who established the first randomized placebo-controlled trial of of IV vitamin C. But his numbers were big enough. They ended up with about 20 in each arm. And now they don't have enough cases to expand that trial. So uh, I've been working with him to connect him to other uh, ICUs where they would use his protocol in uh, intensive care hospitalized patients. But he saw a clear evidence that IV vitamin C improved organ function, <clears throat> but his sample wasn't large enough to have a statistically significant difference in mortality. And that's just one thing. Uh, I, I recommended IV vitamin C to a number of colleagues uh, for themselves and from their patients who uh, you know, had an illness that was consistent with COVID-19. They were unable to get documented but in every case, it's made them feel a lot better. I've also uh, recommended, and this is something I've used for over a decade with many types of viral infections, which is a three day pulse of high dose vitamin D and high dose vitamin A, about 50,000 units of each per day for three days, uh, along with vitamin C to bowel tolerance, meaning you take it, you know, may, maybe start with 500 milligrams every two hours, and gradually increase until there's a a mild laxative effect, but you're not having diarrhea, because that's the limiting factor with oral vitamin C is is the laxative effect that it has beyond a a certain point. But in every case with COVID-19 consistent symptoms, people have gotten significantly better. You know, the the major contraindication to high-dose vitamin A is that there must be zero chance of pregnancy in a, in a woman because the, there's a high that that dose, even for a short time, would, could be teratogenic in an early pregnancy. So zero chance of pregnancy. And for the high dose vitamin D, the contraindications to that are people with any lymphoid malignancy, that would include lymphomas, lymphocytic leukemias, possibly myeloma. Not all of these are problematic, but in many cases, the malignant tissue will uh, auto-convert the 25-hydroxyvitamin D to its active form, the 1,25-dihydroxyvitamin D. And if that goes to high levels, you get high blood calcium, you can calcify the kidneys, all sorts of bad things happen. Mm. uh, and the other people at risk for that are people with chronic, highly inflammatory illnesses in which the inflammation is not controlled. So if they're running you know, C-reactive proteins in, in the, the teens to 20s to 100s, those people w- would also have a relative in contraindication to the three-day pulse of vitamin D.
0: In terms of, you've mentioned vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin D, and zinc. Are there certain, like, is there a certain type of zinc that's better than, I mean, there's, you know, different types of, uh, you know, like magnesium, yes. salts. I mean, so
1: the, most, the, the most well-tolerated and um, most bioavailable zinc that I know of, uh, it it's, can be hard to get a hold of, is made by a company uh, called MegaFood. It's zinc that's been incorporated into yeast. So it's a, it's a food-based zinc and it's easier on the stomach. But aside from that, zinc sulfate is poorly absorbed. All of the other salts of zinc, citrate, picolinate, gluconate, they're all absorbed about the same amount. And they need to be taken with a, you know, in the middle of a significant size meal and spread out over the day to get that much in. But if you can get mega food zinc, there's 7.5 milligrams per tablet. So, you know, I'd use, if, if you use of that 10 tablets uh, twice a day, that's 150 milligrams of zinc. And in that form, that's probably more elemental zinc that will get into your your blood than you would from the uh, the, the various zinc salts. The other class of nutrients that are very important in um, stabilizing the inflammatory effect of the virus on the immune system are uh, the flavonoids. And uh, curcumin from the turmeric root was shown during the Ebola epidemic outbreak to reduce uh, and suppress cytokine storm. There was a problem there. Um, An herb called bergamot, which is a, a, a French one that also reduces blood lipids, has anti-inflammatory properties. Many flavonoids, those that have been highlighted are luteolin and resveratrol, but there are uh, many. I listed them in a a review paper that I wrote with some German colleagues, which is, I posted that to our group, which is what stimulated you to
0: invite (laughs) me to this. I, I read um, that paper and I thought, and I said, I need to get you on this podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I have that list. Yes. So particularly uh, effective, there's a, a an entity called the NLRP3 inflammasome, uh, which is sort of a coordinated cell signaling network within activated macrophages and T helper type one lymphocytes. And that causes production of inflammatory cytokines. So uh, flavonoids that have been documented to interfere with activation of this NLRP3 inflammasome uh, and modulate inflammatory responses include luteolin, which I mentioned, myricetin, apigenin, um, and I'll go into some food sources of these uh, in a little bit, quercetin, temphorol, and uh, bicolin and vulgonicide, which are flavonoids that are from Uh, Scutellaria bicolensis, the Chinese uh, skullcap, uh, sometimes called Siberian skullcap, uh, Scutellaria bicolensis. Its root is very, very flavonoid rich and that you often find that in immune supporting uh, nutritional supplements. And resveratrol in particular was shown in vitro to significantly inhibit the MERS-CoV in the 2007, 2008 uh, outbreak in the Middle East with another uh, coronavirus that caused this severe uh, acute respiratory syndrome. Let me go to some of the foods that are-
0: uh, Yes, if you could give us uh, some of the foods that we should be including in our diet um, in order to get some of these things in, that would be very helpful.
1: So uh, apigenin is uh, quite rich in celery and parsley. Kempferol is rich in Spanish, spinach, cabbage, and dill. Quercetin, uh, good sources of that are dill, fennel leaf, onion, oregano, and chili pepper. And uh, luteolin uh, is rich in olives and star fruit. Nerinjinin uh, it's in citrus fruit, and polyuropin well, is another important one, which is in olives.
0: Of course, for some people, they're probably listening to that and thinking, wow, I can't get to the grocery store, right? It's not safe for me to go to the grocery store. Olives are something that they might have in their cabinet that they didn't realize had some kind of health benefits. Is it, is it a, do you know, is it a particular kind of olive that is uh, particularly beneficial?
1: Um, I, I've not seen anything differentiate between olives. I think they're pretty similar okay. um, in, their, in their content of uh, flavonoids. And, you know, hesperidin is one of the citrus bioflavonoids, which is a um, particular note because it's been shown to bind to the spike protein. You remember I was talking about that's the one that right. it binds to the ACE2 receptor for the virus to infect the cell and go inside and start making copies of itself. Um, so hesperidin, uh binds to the spike protein and interferes with the refolding and actually inhibits the viral infection uh, process. It's often included with, um, in, in fact, look for vitamin C uh, supplements that contain hesperidin, uh, because that's one of the flavonoids often included. And all the citrus fruits are, um, are good sources of it. Um, Oil of oregano has a compound called uh, carvacol, which has uh, antiviral effects. It hasn't been specifically tested in any of the SARS viruses. But quercetin, which I mentioned, uh, and that's, of course, a a key supplement for our our mast cell activation syndrome population. Right, right. the main issue with quercetin is it's, um, its poor bioavailability. It's, it's poorly absorbed um, from the gut, but it is much better absorbed sublingually. So if you can find any quercetin uh, that, that you can just, you know, put in your mouth and suck on, you'll get more of it that way. There's also a, a liposomal form of it that is in some supplements that has about a 20 fold increase but it was shown uh, to inhibit the uh, the SARS-CoV-1 virus, the original SARS virus, and it has shown antiviral effects in um, in animal models with influenza.
0: So I have a question about the quercetin. Uh, I'm wondering, could people take the capsules and open them, and uh, you know, put, put the powder underneath their tongue? Would that absolutely, be... okay. absolutely?
1: It's not going to taste very good, but um, <laughs> that'll work. And okay. you, you know, you might be able to mix it with some monk fruit or something, or cinnamon powders. You know, experiment with recipes sure. that. But you will absorb it um, considerably better sublingually than you do orally. Uh, another one I wanted to mention: important trace mineral is selenium. And mm. fortunately, I mean, you don't even need to go out and buy uh, selenium supplements. If you can get Brazil nuts. So, uh, you know, three or four Brazil nuts will give you uh, a highly effective, uh, amount of selenium. One Brazil nut contains about a hundred micrograms of selenium on average. So I would say, you know, if for prevention, eat two a day. And if you've got viral symptoms, you know, maybe eat 10 a day for, for a while. You know, one of the interesting things is that an early symptom in many people with COVID-19 is loss of smell and taste. Mm. And people have been speculating about, well, does the virus uh, replicate in the nerve endings in the nose? But an equally uh, viable uh, speculation to that is that the immune response to the virus may be very, very highly zinc requiring. This being the reason that zinc is so synergistic with you know, antiviral medications uh, in high doses. And so if the immune system just takes all your zinc, we know that a zinc deficiency uh, causes loss of sense, uh, sense of smell and taste. Um, so if people have borderline zinc reserves, they get exposed to the virus, their immune system starts working on it they may become, um, you know, lose their sense of smell. And what I haven't heard anyone try is supplementing such an individual with high-dose zinc and see if it comes back in a week.
0: Mm, Interesting. So, so in terms of, you know, we know with zinc, we need to be a little bit careful, especially with, you know, long-term supplementation because it can uh, diminish copper levels, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah. If you were to take, uh, 100, even 100 milligrams of zinc a day long term, you would develop a copper deficiency. Um, and that can cause all kinds of, of, of bad things. But a, a high dose for a short time, just like the high dose for a short time of vitamin D and vitamin A is well tolerated. If the, the other part of that is you don't take any supplemental A or D after that three day pulse for a month.
0: For months, uh, okay
1: yeah that's an important thing to add in there the the amounts that are present in a multivitamin like typically 400 units of vitamin d and you know maybe 2500 units of vitamin a those are okay but you would not want to be taking you know 5000 units of zinc or or 10000 units of vitamin a after having done that 3 day high dose pulse for a month
0: okay and that's true for zinc D and A. If you've done one of those yes. high dose pulse for three yes, days if, if, for the D and exactly. The A, exactly. Okay, okay. That that's really good. That's really good to know. In terms of zinc dosing that people can do for the purpose of um, prevention, is there a dose of zinc that works in a large number of, of people that that they can? I, I would use say for- that pe-
1: people who are are uh, in uh, socially distancing haven't been sick. Um, want to be in their best immunologic shape possible if and when they encounter the virus, that daily intake of between 15 and um, 30 milligrams of elemental zinc. Uh, You know, it it may say uh, 50 milligrams of zinc gluconate, but you have to look on the label for how much elemental zinc that is. So I'm talking in terms of elemental zinc, uh, in the 20 to 30 milligram range, higher if you've not taken zinc supplements, lower if you've been supplementing zinc at a, you know, a typical supplement level of you seven and a half milligrams or 10 milligrams a day, something like that uh, long-term. You don't need as much. But if the diet, unless you're eating lots of oysters, is just not very rich in zinc. Uh, the soil has sure. been very depleted of zinc along with many other things. And another compound that, that has um, both immunomodulatory and antioxidant properties is melatonin.
0: Ah, and yes. So Tell I, us about I think,
1: that. I think it's a good idea for people who are waiting this out to you know take one to three milligrams of melatonin um, at bedtime. One of the hypotheses uh, about why children do so much better with this infection than adults is that children have much higher melatonin levels. Sure. Uh, Of course that is in the realm of speculation and there are many you know there are many other aspects uh, between uh, children and adults but children tend to get very um, mild uh, mild symptoms with infection of this virus. If you get infected uh, you know I, in in my integrative cancer protocols for many years, I was recommending allergy research groups uh, melatonin, which is twenty milligrams in a little capsule and that was based on a lot of clinical trials in done in Italy where they used twenty milligrams now that's the dose that they used and in every trial, the melatonin group had better outcomes than the non melatonin group. So we know that it's safe to take that much. Some people, uh, you know, are really kind of hung over the next day, but the best thing you can do if you get sick with COVID-19 is sleep.
0: Right. And right.
1: nourish yourself properly. You know, that's not, not, we need to be exercising and managing stress when we're well, but if you get sick, you need to sleep as much as possible. And, um, so I would go to a twenty milligram melatonin uh, w- with uh, viral symptoms consistent with or documented to be uh, COVID nineteen.
0: Okay, that's that's fantastic. And would you recommend that that be uh, sustained release or immediate release, or does it matter?
1: Um, I with with that kind of dose, I don't think it needs to be sustained release. With low with low doses, sustained release is much more effective in mimicking the natural pineal secretion of of, um, of melatonin, which many older people just don't, um, don't do well. If, if your pineal gland is calcified on x-ray, which about 50% of people over 50 or, or so are, it is probably not secreting melatonin properly. And this is one of the reasons that so many older people have trouble sleeping. Uh, so I, I would hmm. say for prevention one to three milligrams time release during infection, I would bump that up to in the range of 20 milligrams. If you have three milligram capsules, you could just take you know seven of them. Sure. Some people have used as high as 30 milligrams wow. uh, it's, it's quite safe. Okay. okay. And if it makes you groggy in the morning, stay in bed.
0: right. <laughs> sure, sure, absolutely, and, and I want to circle back to one of the supplements that you had mentioned earlier because I, I, I know, um, again, you and I are dealing a lot with the hypermobile population and the uh, mast cell activation and, and things like that, vitamin C is something that um, I recommend all the time. And we know that that's also important for connective tissue, right? And so is there, is there one form of that over another that you would recommend? Of course, it's available liposomal and as a powder and as a capsule or as a tablet. Um, but is there one form of that? You had mentioned a couple of um, potential additives, but is there anything that you would, yeah, I, would especially- I would
1: look for one that contains um, citrus uh, okay, because they're synergistic.
0: And, you
1: know, when you're taking large amounts, uh, the uh, the salts of ascorbic acid, sodium ascorbate, magnesium ascorbate, calcium ascorbate, those are going to be better tolerated than the ascorbic acid in terms of the, the gut response. So if you're going to take vitamin C to bowel tolerance, you probably want to take one that contains the, that's also called buffered vitamin C. It means they're using the Mineral salt of the ascorbic acid. There's another uh, uh, supplement I want to want to mention: N-acetylcysteine. Uh, ah, yes, very important in health, is, especially during infection. Um, it is, you know, it provides the rate-limiting depth to glutathione synthesis. Glutathione being the the three amino acid peptide that is our body's most important. Uh, intracellular antioxidant but N-acetylcysteine also really helps to modify the the mucus in the lung make it easier to clear secretions and it's been used in hospitals for uh, many many decades for this purpose. So um, I would say uh, 600 milligrams for prevention and uh, 600 milligrams three times a day uh, during viral symptoms or, you know, if, if, if you have any degree of cough.
0: Okay. Excellent. And what about taking, uh, glutathione itself? Is that something that's worthwhile or, or you recommend the N-acetylcysteine and skip taking? Well, there's a,
1: you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of good research on, uh, supplemental glutathione. Certainly IV, uh, it works, uh, there are liposomal forms of it that maybe work but we just don't have really good data on it uh, we know that if you supplement with uh, N-acetyl cysteine your body will have an easier time making uh, the melatonin i mean the glutathione that it needs and if your diet and your supplementation which i view as part of diet is rich in antioxidants and every compound we've mentioned here is also a potent antioxidant,
0: Sure.
1: then it's easier for the, for the body to uh, recycle the glutathione into its active form. Uh, and another important supplement to mention in terms of both preventing the virus, reducing susceptibility, and reducing the risk of cytokine storm, if you get it, is uh, palmitoyl ethanolamide often abbreviated PEA.
0: One of my favorite things.
1: Yeah. Uh, So PEA um, for prevention, I'd say, you know, 300 milligrams twice a day. Uh, During viral symptoms, 600 milligrams three times a day. It it, it, It is sort of an endocannabinoid. It was originally thought to be an endocannabinoid and it's it's only two carbons shorter than anandamide, which is, you know, one of the two primary endocannabinoids. And the endocannabinoid system interacts uh, in so many ways with the immune system and many other systems. Um, but PEA, there's pretty good data on it preventing reducing the risk of colds and flu, and some of those colds are coronaviruses. And uh, also very good for stabilizing the uh, inflammatory response to reduce the risk of a cytokine storm.
0: That's that's great to, to know. And um, in terms of options for, for that, um, I know that there is a liposomal uh, form that I have, I, actually I take it and I have recommended it to quite a few patients. Um, is that something that you think is beneficial? I know we've talked about liposomal forms and some other things. Okay. I do, and
1: for the liposomal form, I'd say, you know, two hundred milligrams is worth six hundred milligrams of the non-liposomal.
0: Okay, two hundred milligrams of the liposomal equals six hundred milligrams of the non-liposomal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, excellent.
1: There, 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 are some fairly good data on that, and you know, elderberry is a a long time used antiviral herb, and uh, recently there's been a lot of fear about it because there was, you know, th- there was some in vitro studies. Done in the early 2000s that showed that in tissue culture with macrophages and and T cells, it stimulated inflammatory cytokines, and you know to about four to six fold. And people have looked at that and said, "Oh, you shouldn't take elderberry because it could cause cytokine storm." Well, a cytokine storm is you're talking about three thousand fold increase in these things, which elderberry increased in a tissue culture experiment by up to six I don't know a single herbalist who feels that there is any risk of elderberry contributing to cytokine storm. And any form of elderberry you find is derived from cooked elderberries because raw elderberries are toxic. So mm. the, the black fruit are, are cooked and then uh, kind of a syrup is derived from that. But I, I would recommend you know, 500 milligrams of a, of a good uh, elderberry extract uh, daily. And if you can get it with the leaf and flower extract, those are the, the berry, the compounds in the berry are synergistic with the compounds in the leaf and flower. So that's mm, okay. the really preferred elderberry supplement, but you know, the berry itself is, is quite helpful.
0: Okay, great. And um, in terms of these things that we've mentioned, you know, there are some people that are, you know, going to have the ability to, you know, get lots of these things. And there's other people that are going to say, wow, I can only afford to buy one supplement or, you know, in- incorporate one food that I'm not already, uh, you know, doing. Is there, is there one that's kind of, uh, you know, most important out of all the ones that you've mentioned so far?
1: Well, you know, green tea is another one that, I didn't mention, which is easy for people to do, drink a lot of green tea. The flavonoids in green tea are also um, potently reduce uh, inflammation. I, I would say all of the foods that I mentioned and you know the sort of functional medicine concept of eating the rainbow of uh, colored foods, red, orange, yellow, green, and blue foods uh, is a is a, a good one in general to follow because the nature is kind of marking those brightly colored um, fruits and vegetables as being a source of uh, specially important compounds. And in this case, they are uh, flavonoids such as anthocyanins and carotenoids and and so forth. So a colorful diet. Sure. You know, if you're at home eating beans and rice, you'll survive, but it, it, it doesn't have the things in it that are going to help you if you encounter this virus.
0: Sure. And, and and my theory, you and I didn't even discuss this before we started, but my, my theory is very similar to yours, that there are people that are apparently healthy, but have nutritional deficiencies and uh, therefore not as able to cope with the virus as as well and additionally as an anesthesiologist i would have people you know that i'd be pre-opting for surgery and the the surgeon would tell me they're healthy they have no medical problems and you go to see them and it's just that they've never been to the doctor you know (laughs) right so 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 there's also potentially some of that where you know people just have not um, you know they might not have actually had things appropriately evaluated or like you're saying with the mass it's
1: analogous to the four countries that have had no cases of COVID-19 because
0: they don't have a single test kit. Right, right, <laughs> right. right. Absolute, absolutely. And, and in terms of, I, I really um, appreciate you mentioning the, the NAC and in terms of the respiratory effects for that. Anything else specifically that you would mention for uh, respiratory uh, systems that, that you think is, is beneficial? For?
1: Well, I think we've covered most of them. If someone is quite sick, and thinking that they might need hospitalization and they've already done the high dose vitamin A, C, D uh, or the the three days of A and D and they're continuing with ball tolerance, vitamin C and taking many of the things that we've mentioned. If they can get a hold of a five day course of uh, Plaquenil and combine that with high dose zinc, that would be my go-to Stay out of the hospital regimen.
0: Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. With,
1: with or without a ZPAC. But with a ZPAC, it introduces they need to know their QT interval. Sure. Because um, if, if it's prolonged, both of those drugs prolong it, and uh, you take them together, it prolongs it a lot. And if it's already prolonged, they'd run the risk of, of uh, very dangerous ventricular arrhythmias.
0: That uh, that that makes sense. And if you can stay out of the hospital nowadays, uh, that would be a good idea. If you're in, you know, uh, quite severe distress, then, you know, you need to call 9 one or go, you know, potentially go into the emergency room or, or the hospital. But, you know, we definitely, just a disclaimer, be sure to call, you know, first because that's what they're, you know, wanting people to, to do nowadays. But, right. um, okay, okay. That's, that's all great information. Now, getting back to our specific- And, and, uh, ben- and it, it
1: also one of those stay out of the hospital therapies, if you can access it somehow, would be uh, IV vitamin C in the range of 20 grams sure, every day or every other day. Uh, I've, I've seen that really turn people around from what looked like they were going to end up in the hospital to not.
0: Interesting. Interesting. And would you, t- w- before you do that, would you want them to have a um, six glucose D? Yes. Oh boy. Phosphate I, test. Okay. I, yeah. They, six they,
1: everyone should have a G6PD, which is an easy test to get, but maybe not in these times.
0: Right. Right. So I you mean, want to board, probably
1: Quest, both carry it.
0: Sure. I'm not sure is what the, the time is on G6PD. Okay. G6 okay. Some people already it depends know on the hospital.
1: Some of them do it in house
0: sure sure
1: um, anybody who's ever had high- dose IV vitamin C whether they were tested or not it doesn't need to be tested because if they did have g6pt deficiency they would have hemolyzed and had serious renal pain and renal insufficiency and so forth
0: sure sure okay okay um, yeah that that's uh, helpful to know and for people who are not aware of that you know you don't you don't necessarily need to worry about this. This is for your, for your doctor who may be potentially administering that, but you might, you know, you could mention that you've heard about this and it's something that you're interested in, but you know, there's a test that potentially should be done beforehand. And it's also helpful to mention if you have had high dose vitamin C intravenously in the past. So, um, so that, right. that's, that's really, yeah, good they, they don't need to be tested if they've had,
1: you know, more than 10 grams IV in the past.
0: Okay. Okay, very good. And um, getting back to our, our bendy population that you know has um, they might have EDS or you know another hypermobility disorder. They may or may not have um, dysautonomia or dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, and or you know mast cell activation syndrome. So they have um, abnormal. Uh, mast cell granulation and that kind of thing. Are there certain any certain precautions that they should take? Should they be changing the medication regimen that they're on, especially, I guess I'm specifically asking about the people with mast cell activation syndrome?
1: Well, I think it would be very important um, for them to stay on all of their mast cell uh, medications and be sure that they, uh, you know, that they take them with them if they go to the hospital, because the hospital may or may not take them seriously about oh I need antihistamines and and um, you know they may not have chromalin. so they should have you know they should have a kind of a two week supply of their mat- all their mast cell medications and uh, supplements ready to go in case they do need to go to the hospital. And the patient should take it with them because their family may not be allowed to visit them. If they test positive, they get put in isolation. Sure. And if they, ha- if they take that with them, then they can take them whenever the, <laughs> the nurse is not in the room, which is probably a lot <laughs> of the time uh, these days. I-, I would have no compunctions about telling them to just take their mast cell medications um, off the record, or they could tell the doctor, you know, hey, I have mast cell activation patient syndrome and I, I take these things, I brought them with me. Um, they don't interact with anything because if they, if you know, a, a mast cell patient on, uh, under good control may actually have some advantages over a, a non-mast cell patient or certainly an undiagnosed and untreated mast cell patient. And that's what it may well be some of the young people who have died of cytokine storm may have been um, undiagnosed mast cell patients. Uh, Larry Afrin has noted that the incidence of cytokine storm uh, is about 15%, and the incidence of mast cell activation syndrome in the population is about 15%. And the vast majority of those are undiagnosed and untreated.
0: Sure, and and with that, fifteen percent is that fifteen percent of people who have serious illness with this. It's fifteen percent of or, cases. It's just fifteen percent of documented okay. cases. So okay. it,
1: it's you know it's it's probably lower because we're very very far away from knowing the denominator in this uh, in this pandemic, especially in this country.
0: Sure. Sure. And, and, and I would add too, for the people that are on uh, medications for mast cell activation syndrome, some of their medications are compounded because they can't have the quote unquote, inactive ingredients or, or excipients. And, and so if they go to the hospital and they just get, you know, uh, they, they might say, Oh, I'm already taking, you know, uh, some, some antihistamine, but maybe they can't tolerate the hospital pharmacy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So that's why I'm saying they should have a two week pack of their stuff put aside, ready to go with them to the hospital if they uh, if, if that need would ever arise
0: sure sure that's uh I think that's very 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 good advice um, okay, and there's a couple of other things that I wanted to ask about that um, were have been out there in the in the media, and I'm just you know, and/or I've seen some some articles about this as, and I imagine other people have as well. And with your expertise, it would be very interesting to hear what you think about blood types. The yeah. um, data about yeah. blood type, yeah, vitamin A.
1: A I, uh, type A seems to do less well. Right, uh, right. O seems to do better. This is probably related to lectins in ways that we don't understand, because lectins are what are the determinants of the blood group antigens, and there also there are lectins that are antiviral. Uh, for instance, the um, the nettle root, urtica dioica, which is commonly used in prostate supplements. It contains a, uh, a lectin, which is very potent in vitro and in animal models against SARS-CoV-2. And so, you know, another thing people might consider for their zinc, uh, supply would be a you know a prostate support supplement that has the uh, dioica root extract in it as well as the zinc so there's probably some interaction between the lectins of the blood group with either the virus or with the immune response to the virus uh, that uh, that is um, significant and the the lectins that um, generate blood type A may interfere somehow in that response where O doesn't have them. And I, I don't remember whether AB, the AB type, where it fell on the, the curve. I know A was worse and O was better.
0: That's and, all I remember seeing too. Yeah, I don't remember saying anything yeah. about AB. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I don't think the RH factor uh, has been uh, found to make any difference, but you know, there's nothing we can do about our blood type. Right, right, so, right. But there's a lot right. we can do about our nutritional preparedness for this and lead a health-enhancing lifestyle right now. When people don't have to work, um, you know, people don't have to stay inside. They just have to stay out of public places. So I encourage people to go out and walk. You know we have we have a, a five acre property in in northern California with a lot of uh, part of it is forested and <clears throat> we're surrounded by forest. And I was out in the world for three weeks in Florida during the time it was on its way to being a hot spot. And so when I got home, I have quarantined myself in the house trailer that we have set up for house guests. And my wife brings me food and <laughs> takes away my trash. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, during the day, I just go outside and wander around in nature. So it's a good time to be exercising. It's a good time to be meditating um, or doing any kind of uh, stress management. And it, it's not a great time to have the news on 24-7 because right. the, news is, is, the, the news generates stress. Uh, I mean, it's good to check in every now and then. At, you know, and just see where it is. But in terms of of what you um, might consume from the TV, my my suggestion, or your or uh, or the web, my suggestion are things that make you laugh, because we know mm. that laughter is particularly um, powerful in moving the lymphatic system and in supporting the immune system. And uh, negating the effects of stress, so I'd say watch stuff that makes you laugh, and spend time in nature, eat well, start a garden, <laughs> even, if <it's, laughs> even if it's little pots on your on your your balcony of your apartment, and you know get get the best food that you can.
0: I, I love that you particularly used the word consume when you were referring to the news because I feel like. We should view it that way—that it's that it's like putting something in our bodies that, mm-hmm. that really is quite toxic. And like you said, yeah, you I mean, can't you unsee it. You can't unhear no, it. No, you can't. You can't. And and the media, the media is all about, uh, you know, just trying to sell you something. And it's no longer about you know objective information. And obviously, well, there's lots. Yeah, of, they're
1: looking for what's sensational. That's correct. What, that's what puts eyes on their channel.
0: Right, right. But
1: everything that's sensational is stressful.
0: Right, right, right. Absolutely. So so I, I really like that because in addition to pointing out things that we should be doing, I did want to make sure to cover things that we should not be doing so watching watching the news i mean you know more than kind of maybe checking the web briefly just to see hey is there something else that i you know should be doing but uh, but otherwise a very very limited amount of that is are there other things that people should avoid doing
1: i mean i i would avoid over exercising Um, okay you know not this is not the time to be training for a marathon or a triathlon because those you know there's a there's a bell-shaped curve with exercise and the immune response. So stay in that sweet spot, which is 15 to 2,500 kilocalories per week. And do things that you love doing. You know, it might be pottering okay. around your garden or... But yeah, do, do things that make you happy. Watch things that make you laugh. Uh, be outside as much as you can. And eat as well as you can. And, and supplement as well as you can.
0: What about alcohol? Any thoughts about that?
1: I would avoid alcohol right now. Okay. Completely?
0: Um,
1: you know, there's some data that in terms of heart health, a little bit of alcohol may be better than none. But in terms of the immune system, I, I, I don't think that regular consumption of alcohol is, um, is going to be good for that. <laughs> Use, you know, by Everclear and Pour it on baby wipes and use that to wipe down everything <laughs> you get from the store that's the way we use alcohol
0: sure sure right yeah that's a that's a good good plan I like that plan yeah because you can't
1: okay. buy you know isopropyl alcohol in the stores anymore but right? can, most liquor stores you can get you know 160 to 180 proof um, alcohol and you, you can't get sterilizing wipes but you can get you know baby wipes and just Kind of ring them out and then uh, fill uh, fill them
0: with alcohol and let them soak that up. That is a great tip. I love that. Okay, I'm adding that to my list of notes here. Okay, yeah, because you're right. There's those are some of the things that you can't get in the store. And and all these tips are fabulous and great. But if we don't do the basic things too, like washing our hands and wiping down surfaces, and you know that, then then the rest of the stuff is not going to you know really uh, be very helpful. So, okay. Wonderful. Is there anything else that I should have asked you? And can you also let people know where they can find out more information about you and the work that you're doing?
1: Well, I, I, I kind of hide from the world.
0: Uh, (laughs) That's okay too. That's okay.
1: (laughs) um, Yeah. My, my, uh, interest in mast cell activation syndrome was the realization that um, my son, who was exposed to toxic mold and developed chronic fatigue, has mast cell activation syndrome, which you know, because I presented his case at our the meeting where we met. Right. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I, I do consulting for uh, research. I formulate for a nutraceutical company. I consult with other doctors in, about integrative cancer care, but I, I don't have a website. And aside from doing interviews, I'm in the a, a low profile sure. stage of my career
0: <laughs> that's okay that's okay well i'm so grateful to you for for doing this interview with me this has been such great information and um there's been so many uh, people who have asked been asking questions what what should i do i have like you said either I suspect that I have mast cell activation syndrome, or I do have it. Um, I do have EDS, dysautonomia, any, you know, any of those things. So this is just going to be so, so helpful. So I, I'm so grateful to you for, for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, you're more than welcome, Linda. My pleasure. Well, great. Well, you all have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today, my guest has been Dr. Dwight McKee, board-certified physician in medical oncology, hematology, nutrition, and integrative and holistic medicine. And thank you so much again, Dr. McKee.
1: Thank you, Linda. Take care.
0: Okay, you too. Please go to bendybodies.org for links to all the episodes and to access the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, leave a review, and consider rating us five stars. Don't forget to subscribe so you will be notified of all new episodes. Feedback is greatly appreciated and can be emailed to bendybodiespodcast at gmail.com. Go to hypermobilitymd.com to sign up for my newsletter. Thank you to Rhett Gill for production and sound editing, to Andrew Savino for composing our original music, and to Jennifer Arsenault for designing the Bendy Bodies website and cover artwork. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Please see your own medical team prior to making any changes to your health care. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.